Welcome back to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. All right, welcome back to the corner, folks. Um, today I'm going to record this special podcast. It is basically covers the GPS version of Thomas Jefferson's presidency. The reason I'm doing this is because my class is not meeting first block today because of registration. So therefore, this is just a little bonus podcast, mainly for my first block and anybody else that wants to learn more about Jefferson's eight years in office, according to the state of Georgia. We left off with Adam's presidency, and if you recall from there, the big items there were the Alien and Sedition Acts, which made Adams pretty unpopular with the common people. So when we get to number 13, the election of 1800, the Democratic-Republicans led by Thomas Jefferson, are fully aware that they're most likely going to beat John Adams. That's not the question. But they don't just want to beat him. They want to beat Adams twice. The reason for that, if you recall, under the Constitution at the time, whoever finishes first is president, whoever finishes second, vice president. And that's exactly what happened in 1796. And Jefferson proceeded to make Adams' presidency miserable. Well, Jefferson does not want that to happen to him. He doesn't want to finish first and Adams finished second and make him as vice president. So what Jefferson and the Democrat-Republicans would like to do is Jefferson finished first, have another Democrat-Republican finish second, and that way John Adams would finish third, which means he's back in Braintree, Massachusetts, instead of in government in Washington causing problems for the Democrat-Republicans. So when it comes to the election of 1800, the fix is kind of in here. The Democrat-Republicans know they have the votes to beat John Adams, who's lost a lot of popularity since 96, mainly because of the Alien and Sedition Acts, but other reasons as well. So what the Democratic Republicans do is they kind of split their vote, and they select a gentleman by the name of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr fought during the Revolutionary War as well. He's been a member of Congress in the, in the 1780s and 90s, so he is an important figure, but he does not have the revolutionary resume that Thomas Jefferson does. Clearly, Jefferson is supposed to be president and Burr be vice president of the United States. But the problem is the Democratic-Republicans do too good of a job, and they split their vote evenly, which means they both, Burr and Jefferson, tie at 73 votes. And Adams does indeed finish third, which makes him not vice president of the United States. So according to the Constitution at that time, if the Electoral College votes and nobody wins a majority— in this case, the top two candidates tied. The election then is decided in the House of Representatives. So this election goes to the House. In the House, they discuss the two candidates and vote again. And at the end of the first ballot in the House, they are still tied. They discuss the candidates even further. They vote again. At the end of the second ballot, they are still tied. 35 ballots later in the House, Burr and Jefferson are still tied for president. Finally, Alexander Hamilton helps break the deadlock by throwing his support to Jefferson over Burr. Hamilton would not want Jefferson or Burr to be president. Hamilton's a high federalist. These are both Democratic Republicans. This would be like Donald Trump today picking from Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi to be president. Neither would be his choice. However, he believes Jefferson, as flawed as he is politically, at least has a man of principle, whereas he believes Burr does not. To put it bluntly, Hamilton dislikes both of them professionally or politically, but he despises Burr personally. Hamilton throws his support, 
and Hamilton's still really popular, behind Jefferson after 35 debt ballots in the House, and that's enough to make Jefferson president of the United States. So Thomas Jefferson wins the election of 1800, making him the third president of the United States, and Aaron Burr comes in second, which makes him the vice president of the United States, the third vice president of the United States. And John Adams finishes a distance third, which puts him into retirement back, back in Braintree, Massachusetts. So that is the outcome of the election of 1800. Now you know why the 12th Amendment was passed shortly after this election. If you take the election of 1796 and the election of 1800 with the whoever finishes first and second fiasco, starting with the 12th Amendment, which is election of 1804, the candidates now run on a ticket together instead of whoever gets the most as president, whoever gets second most as vice president. The election of 96 and 1800 change led to the changes in the Constitution. Next topic here is number 14 is the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson is the president who is responsible for the Louisiana Purchase. This occurs during his time in office. He makes the purchase in 1803. He takes office in 1801, so it's about halfway through his first term. Now, what happens here with Jefferson, if you recall back to the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American Revolution, the United States got all British lands up to the Mississippi, West of the Mississippi, Spain got all the British claims west of Mississippi. Napoleon comes to power at the end of the French Revolution, and one of his goals is to reestablish the French Empire worldwide, back before the French and Indian War. If you remember, France was claiming almost all of North America, or a large part of North America. So Napoleon takes part of that territory from Spain, they give it up, and he is trying to reestablish French colonial dominance around the world. Well, by 1803, Napoleon is now back at war with England. This is the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars, which lasts until 1814. At this point, Napoleon needs money more than he needs territory on the other side of the planet. So Jefferson realizes this. Jefferson's trying to take advantage. Jefferson's Secretary of State is a gentleman by the name of James Madison. You recall him. He's the author of the Constitution and later the fourth president of the United States. And then they select the lead negotiator is James Monroe. If you recall, he becomes the fifth president eventually. Monroe and Livingston, Robert Livingston, if you remember him, he's one of the Committee of Five. They're the main negotiators in France. So Jefferson and Madison send Monroe and Livingston to Paris to meet with Napoleon's government. Jefferson's aware that Napoleon might be open to selling part of the territory because he needs money. Here's what Jefferson, the instructions Jefferson gives Monroe. He gives him the authority to purchase, he he wants to purchase the port city of New Orleans up to the sum of $10 million. When Monroe gets to France, he negotiates with Napoleon's government. He's authorized to purchase the port city of New Orleans for a maximum of $10 million. Well, he makes an offer to Napoleon's government and they refuse. In return, what they offer is, we won't just sell you New Orleans and the Orleans territory, We'll sell you the entire Louisiana Territory, which is about a third of the continent. It stretches from the Gulf of Mexico up to present-day Canada and from the Mississippi River out to the Rocky Mountains. So if you think the Louisiana Purchase, Louisiana Territory, is just the state of Louisiana, you cannot be more wrong. It's about all or part of a dozen states in the United States to this day. So, so of course, Monroe is blown away by this offer. It exceeds what he's wanting just New Orleans for $10 million, but he'll sell in the entire area, which is over 820,000 square miles, for $15 bucks. 
Now, Monroe is not authorized to do this deal, but he also realizes if he says no, that Napoleon might sell it back to the Spanish or to another European power because he needs money to fight the British. He goes ahead and signs a treaty, even though he's not authorized. So he comes back with this treaty, and him, Jefferson, and Madison, the Secretary of State, are all thrilled with the treaty, but they're also worried at the same time. Because if you remember Jefferson back in the 1790s when he was Secretary of State Jefferson and when he was Vice President Jefferson was what we call a strict interpreter of the Constitution. What that means is if it doesn't say it in the Constitution, then the federal government, including the president, cannot do that. Well, the problem here is now that he's president, nowhere in the Constitution does it say the federal government and the president can buy land. So according to his own constitutional principles, what Jefferson is doing is unconstitutional. In other words, to put it bluntly, Secretary of State Jefferson, Vice President Jefferson, would have criticized Washington and Adams for this, but President Jefferson does it anyways. The treaty has to pass the Senate before it's ratified, and there are many people in the Senate who, A, don't really like Thomas Jefferson, and B, believe that this is unconstitutional as well, but the treaty narrowly passes the Senate because most people realize it's just too good of an opportunity. So what the Louisiana Purchase does, Louisiana, the acquiring of Louisiana Territory, that extends the western boundary of the United States from the Mississippi all the way out to the Rocky Mountains. If you remember, in 20 years, in 1783, the colony stopped at the Appalachian Mountains. 20 years later, by 1803, the United States extends two-thirds across the continent all the way out to the Rocky Mountains. This is where the concept of manifest destiny the belief that the United States should stretch from sea to shining sea, this is where it really picks up steam in the early 1800s. It's not until 1848 with the end of the Mexican-American War where the United States realizes its manifest destiny, which means the United States stretches from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. All right, so now that Jefferson has purchased this territory, um, he hires two guys, Lewis, uh, actually Meriwether Lewis was Jefferson's personal secretary, and Meriwether Lewis chooses his old commanding officer or CO in the military, uh, William Clark. And you know them best as the Lewis and Clark expedition. The real name of this expedition is the Corps of Discovery. And that tells us a couple things that are important. Corps, like Marine Corps, tells us that this mission is part of the U.S. military. This is not like 50 best friends going on a road trip. This is bought and paid for by the U.S. government, by Congress. And this is a military expedition. And the purpose of this expedition, hence Corps of Discovery, is really to find out what's out west. Jefferson chooses these guys. They recruit about 50 young men, and they leave. At this time, when you go west of Mississippi, that's basically unexplored territory. And not only do they go all the way through Louisiana Purchase, they actually go all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, which is not part of the United States at that time. So they're gone, the Lewis and Clark expedition, they're gone for two and a half years. Um, they return in 1806, they leave in 1804. So they're gone for over two years. And what we get from the Lewis and Clark expedition for the first time, really, is accurate information about what's out west in the American frontier, like plants, animals, Native American tribes, topography, it's like terrain, like the great, plains, the Rocky Mountains. So what Lewis and Clark really bring back is the accurate, valuable information about the American West, and that's in 1806. Okay, 
So that is 14 and 15. That is the Louisiana Purchase and Lewis and Clark Expedition. The next one on your list is Marbury versus Madison. Okay, and that is the first landmark court case. If you're into constitutional law, this is the first major case dealing with U.S. Constitution. What this gives us, if you know nothing else from Marbury versus Madison, it's a Supreme Court case decided in 1803. If you know nothing else, just know it establishes the judicial precedence of judicial review. I repeat, Marbury versus Madison establishes judicial review. Make sure you know that for your test and quiz. Now, what does that mean, judicial review? That means the ability of the third branch of government, the judicial branch, to review laws of Congress and actions of the executive branch. In civics, you remember when you're learning American government, you learn that Congress makes laws. You learn that president or executive branch enforces laws, and the third branch, the Supreme Court or judicial branch, interprets the laws or rules stuff constitutional, unconstitutional. That's judicial review. Now, where does Congress or legislative branch get the right to make laws? Article 1 of the Constitution gives them that right. Where does the president or executive branch get the right to enforce laws? Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution gives the executive branch and the president that right. Where does the Supreme Court or the judicial branch get the right to interpret laws? That comes from Marbury versus Madison. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the Supreme Court has that authority. What happens in 1803, the Supreme Court just does it, and President Jefferson and the Congress accept it. And then ever since then, 1803, the Supreme Court has been ruling stuff constitutional or unconstitutional or judicial review. So without Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court would probably not be a relevant branch today. Basically, the only time we'd hear from the Supreme Court without this case, if they did not have the power to interpret laws or interpret actions of the president, the only time we'd really hear from that uh, is what they call original jurisdiction. And the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction in just a couple of instances. One of two states get into an issue and they sue each other. So let's say like South Carolina and Georgia get in an argument over Lake Lanier water rights. And if South Carolina sued Georgia, that wouldn't start in South Carolina, that wouldn't start in Georgia, that wouldn't start in any state court. That case would start at the Supreme Court. So when two states sue each other, that would go straight to Supreme Court. And then the only other one that really would start in Supreme Court is if an ambassador gets in trouble. So if a foreign diplomat, let's say the ambassador from England comes over to to New York City, and he's here on official business, and he's accused of a crime, like raping a woman, let's say. That case would not start at the district court in Manhattan, New York City. That case would not start at the state court, at the state level in New York. Since he's a foreign diplomat representing another country, that would start at the Supreme Court. So those are really the only two that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. So if it wasn't for Marbury versus Madison, we wouldn't hear as much from the Supreme Court, wouldn't be in the news. So, no, in 1803, the famous case of Marbury versus Madison establishes judicial review. And then the last part is number 17, which is embargo. An embargo is when you stop buying or shipping, when you stop purchasing goods from a country. That's an embargo. It's like a boycott of a certain country. In this case, um, what's happening here, this is Jefferson's second term. So he was elected in 1800. He was reelected in 1804. The Embargo Act 
is passed by Congress in 1807 and signed into law by Jefferson. He's in office. He leaves office in 1809. So these are the last two years of his presidency. And what's going on by this point, by 1807, the Napoleonic Wars are, are raging in Europe. So England and France are at war with each other. And the United States, Jefferson and Adams have followed Washington's proclamation of neutrality, which means they're staying out of the war. We're not supporting England and we're not supporting France. But we're continuing to trade with European nations. So what's happening? Both sides, England, England and the French are doing this, but the English are doing it at a much higher rate and are a lot more offensive about it, but both sides are doing it. What they're doing is they are interfering with U.S. shipping in Europe. They are taking private ships, pulling them over with their navy, and taking the cargo off those ships and using it as their own or selling it, and they are starting to, infor- to force the Americans on these ships into the Royal Navy. It's called impressment. Impressment. That means basically kidnapping Americans and making them serve in the British Royal Navy. The reason they're doing this is both sides don't want the United States trading in Europe while Europe's at war and not choosing a side. So what they're saying is that's fine if you're not going to get involved in this conflict over here, but at the same time you're not going to make money off of Europe while we're doing this. So what they really would like, the French and the British would like the United States to support them at the war with each other. That's really what they would like. So this, this concept of impressment, this issue, really starts under the Adams administration. It picks up greatly under Jefferson, and eventually under Madison leads to the main cause of the War of 1812. So what Jefferson does, instead of declaring war or getting involved in a conflict or sending the Navy or the Marine Corps to Europe, Uh, He declares an embargo on England and France, and England's the biggie because that's our largest trading partner. What he basically says is we will not trade with England anymore, like a boycott. The purpose of this, what he's trying to do is hurt Great Britain financially so they will stop interfering with American shipping and impressing American citizens into the Royal Navy. Now, here's the problem. This goes into effect in 1807. It has very little, if any, negative consequence on the British economy, but it cripples the American economy, especially the northern economy like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore. That's where most of the shipping's coming out of. Lots of people living in the north, they're, they go unemployed overnight. They lose their jobs because of the Jefferson's Embargo Act. While this does not do what he wants, Uh, Jefferson believes it just needs more time. If you stay the course, Britain will eventually be hurt economically, and they'll stop doing this. So Jefferson refuses to lift the Embargo Act through the rest of his presidency. Now, he's still a very popular president. Jefferson is still, by this point, the author of the Declaration of Independence. He's been a minister to France. He was the first Secretary of State, the second vice president, third president. He has a very illustrious career, and he's still very popular. But most people don't like his Embargo Act. So the next president, James Madison, is also a Democratic-Republican. He is a Jeffersonian at heart. In fact, Madison is probably more Jeffersonian than Jefferson is at times. And they are good friends. But when Madison becomes president, one of the first things he does is quietly repeal the Embargo Act of 1807 as not to embarrass his successor and mentor, Thomas Jefferson. So that leads us up to 18, which is Madison's presidency. So this is just a little bonus podcast for you, for those of you, because we're not going to be able to cover this in class. 
If you do your notes, you watch the video, and you still feel like you're missing, I encourage you to listen to this podcast. And I will see you next time around the corner. Bye. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss another episode. See you next time. I am Blaine Jaffe, the voice of the intro and exit for Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Thank you for listening.